1: Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Keith Krueger, an intellectual history channel host, and today it's a real honor to be joined by Jefferson Cowie, professor of history at Vanderbilt University. Professor Cowie's work in social and political history focuses on how class, inequality, and labor shape American politics and culture. The Nation magazine described him as one of our most commanding interpreters of recent American experience. The professor's 1999, Capital Moves, RCA's 70-year quest for cheap labor, follows the relocation of one iconic corporation through four different cities, two countries, and the social upheaval of the times. Uh, The book received the 2000 Philip Taft Prize for the best book in labor history and was hailed by Michael Kazin as a conceptually rich and deeply humane book by a rare historian who illuminates the future by explaining a vital part of the past. He received the 2011 Francis Parkman Prize for the Best Book in American History and the Merle Curti Award for the Best Book in Social and Intellectual History with his 2010 Staying Alive the 1970s and the last days of the working class which draws together labor politics and popular culture into a narrative about the decline of class and american political culture receiving favorable comparisons to the work of e.p thompson jefferson Cowie's 2016 the great exception the new deal and the limits of american politics which attempts to reinterpret a wide swath of American political history in the 20th century. The Washington Post E.J. uh, Dionne Jr. called it one of the year's most important political books. Today, Professor Cowie joins us to discuss his latest, published this year by Basic Books, Freedom's Dominion, a saga of white resistance to federal power. Professor Cowie, Jefferson, Thanks for taking the time to talk with us today about your writing and research. Thanks, it's great to be with you, Keith. Uh, let me start uh, by asking you to share a bit about your scholarly influences and how you came to study social and political history. Wow, well,
2: that's a that's a long, long uh, answer, uh, but I'll try to I'll try to be quick. I actually started out at the University of California as an engineer engineering major. Um, and that didn't work out so well. Um, uh, and then I, I found my true passion uh, for history. Um, you know, when I think about it, it was really uh, Leon Litwack at the University of California, Berkeley, who was a amazing, a scholar with an incredible range, talked about labor, race, class, gender to a lesser extent, but just uh, an amazing lecturer. Uh, he passed away recently. Um, and he really got me excited about, about history. Um, I'd always been interested, but he really got me excited. And, and then those, all those graduate students you had just seemed so cool and seemed to have, just understand everything, you know, and I was like, I want to be like those guys. Right. And, um, uh, and I, uh, slowly, uh, after dropping out of college a number of times, eventually finished with a history degree from the university of California, Berkeley. And, um, uh, but you know, I, From an autobiographical standpoint, I've been interested in class uh, mostly and how class works in America, which is, you know, uh, something we try to obfuscate as often as possible in American culture. And, you know, my dad was a custodian. So I was, you know, I sort of had a front row seat to how economic inequality worked on a day-to-day basis. And, uh, you know, like Richard Sennett's, the hidden injuries of class was sort of important to me where he... Kind of reveal the the subtle ways that class that the people internalize economic inequality in the United States, and uh, that that was a, re- a really important book to me uh, early on. So anyway, I eventually decided, oh, maybe I'll I'll, 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 I'll study the labor movement. Um, and actually, I was involved politically in the anti-apartheid movement at Berkeley, not in, a, in an enormous way, but I remember we were doing this sort of Sandlot campus politics about about uh divestment from the from um South Africa to end uh the apartheid regime, and then we heard the longshoremen refused to unload cargo from South Africa down in the port of oakland and and right then I was like oh that's that's power that's actual economic power that's leverage. it's not just a bunch of kids down in sprawl Plaza at Berkeley yelling um and 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 that got me really excited to see sort of those dynamics of of power.
1: Um hey so let me ask you uh if you had to characterize yourself within a genre of history because certainly your books point to an answer but would you have a different take these days uh and, and if you were leading a seminar uh w- within your field of specialty hey what foundational text would you recommend covering and 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 how would you uh kind of introduce yourself to the group well, yeah, that it's an interesting
2: question because it, it's a moving train for me. I went to school, I went to um, graduate school, and I studied with people who did labor stuff. Uh, Liam Fink, Jacqueline Hall, uh, especially John French, a Brazilian uh, labor historian at Duke, and um, well, I was at UNC, but he was at Duke. Um, and the school that I was sort of trained in was the what was called the new new labor history. And it grew out of the social history movements of the 60s. Um, you already mentioned D.P. Thompson. Uh, he's sort of the OG of, of, of labor history. His, uh, the making of the English working class in 1963 kind of opened up the whole idea that class could be not a rigid economic sociological thing, but a something that is performed, uh, is iterative, is socially constructed in, 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 at any given time. And that was brought to the U.S. through Herb Gutman, David Montgomery, David Brody, people like this. And um, my advisor studied with Herb Gutman. And so I really come out, I'm sort of the nth generation of this new labor history. But I I quickly became a critic of it. Um, The community study and the factory study were kind of the coin of the realm in that world. And so my dissertation was the RCA project that you mentioned early on. And what I did, I said, okay, well. Communities, if community is a resource in how people deal with everyday struggles, and that you can find a certain solidarity on, on a local level. What does that mean if you put that in this sort of competitively charged, transnational economic grid? And then you have a completely different idea of what that means. And so, I, I looked at four communities and how one corporation moved through them all, and that, and that really kind of uh, for me pulled the curtain back. I think a little bit on, on how. My sort of field of origin uh, had constrained itself a little bit. And then my next move was sort of this, you mentioned staying alive. I uh, I said, oh, well, if class can be sort of socially and economically constructed, maybe it can be deconstructed at any given time, too. And so I looked at the 1970s and the dissolution of how class works in American politics and how we sort of ended up with this hole, like a donut hole in the middle of our culture where we used to talk about questions of economic power and economic equality. So anyway, that's kind of the long history of my intellectual development. And then I began to think a little bit more about these things. And, you know, I came of age, I think there's a certain historiographical uh, weight to your question here. And, and I, I came of age in grad school in the 90s. And, you know, this is the end of history and the rise of neoliberalism. And And even I got kind of, not directly, but you could caught up in a little bit and there, there's a sense that, oh, race, race was not going to be as important a thing. That it was really like if you could find a way to redistribute all the wealth that capitalism was creating, then maybe we could be okay and we'll be sort of have this multicultural thing. But the salience of race just continued to kind of pound on and resonate. And so I um, that's when I began to think about this book, Freedom's Dominion, and how central race was in in constructing some of the central ideas of the American creed. And so to say what I would teach in a graduate seminar is really, really tough because I, I'm sort of a labor historian in recovery and I'm trying to get a bigger, slightly bigger canvas, right? Um, and and that the anti-statism that you see among a lot of working people comes before uh, a lot of the other questions that people were looking at in, in labor history. And so I also wanted to account for this resistance to federal power that that I, that I I ran across on a regular basis uh, even in some of the most progressive uh, unions and things like that so you know uh, I would definitely have to if, if I were training labor historians I'd have to start with you know probably EP Thompson and then move, move through gutman and Montgomery and these guys and then but then on into the gender turn and the linguistic turn in American history and, and I think you see that here too where I'm kind of There's a community study dimension that is an old social history trope, but then I'm putting it in the history of capitalism a little bit, which is another field I'm sort of allied with. Mm -hmm. And then I'm also bringing in the linguistic turn a little bit by um, looking at this one term freedom and how that works. So I'm kind of trying to bring together a, a sort of triangulation of these different fields or approaches rather to history into a sort of synthetic conceptualization of how history might work
1: so uh, a reading list uh for for your graduate seminar hey they would take you across a few boundaries there where uh, like maybe wendy brown and elizabeth anderson and uh wendy yeah. brown
2: was on my undergraduates final
1: exam this just this week well hey you mentioned uh, capital moves and and your focus on labor and the corporation in capital moves certainly would earn you the moniker of labor historian, uh, whether, as you say, in, uh, in remission or, uh, <laughs> or not. Um, if there's a case, case study-like field of the book, and I, and I mean that in a positive way. You managed to combine a moving narrative with the existential angst uh, for people who had built their lives around uh, RCA. It's a book that harkens back to NAFTA, uh, GAT and ross perot and in a longer labor history can you share with listeners the significance of your thesis there and some of your trials and tribulations writing it oh wow that's we could go on on that one for quite a while yes no uh,
2: it's it's funny you should mention that because so i wrote that in the 90s uh, researched it in the 90s as my dissertation and that was the hothouse of globalization the nafta was passed in 93 implemented in 94 and um you know, the WTO was, was created and and the Democratic Party was shifting towards a sort of global Davos kind of uh, approach to governance. And so my my uh, original proposal was uh, to contrast the old sort of New Deal collective bargaining system with the new international division of labor you saw emerging on the border, uh, which was really about casual, much more casual labor, the use of young women and things like this. And then I got in the field and started studying this and looking at all these communities and found out there was more continuity than there was difference between what had happened in the United States and what had happened in the maquiladoras in Mexico. So it, you know, it, was, it was sort of a paradigm shift. I had to kind of like twist my head around and throw out my original proposal and, and say, oh, okay, this is a, not a story of change. This is a story of continuity. And that it, it looks at Camden, New Jersey, Bloomington, Indiana – Memphis, Tennessee, and Ciudad Juarez, Chihuahua. And in each place, they went and they hired young women to do the work. And then um, and then over the course of the better part of a generation, typically, things changed, but a, a sort of, uh, it was no longer the employer employer's realm and workers did learn a certain sort of, uh, uh, gain a certain sense of power and entitlement on the job. And then the more that grew, then, the uh, employer tended to move on to find uh, greener pastures for their purposes of making um, consumer electronics
1: no it's interesting juxtaposition really uh, i i like that about this uh, worker entitlement butting heads with capital mobility so in many ways i i guess i i should say it seems like a work of social science i realize that you're broadening of your phd dissertation But this idea that you took that thing and you shaped it and some of the variables and and assumptions, I guess my question is, it seems like compared with where you are today in terms of your narrative historical writing, hey, that was an interesting start. And you can kind of see the social science roots to it, I think, right? (laughs)
2: Yeah, well, it's that's an interesting statement. I, I am a I'm, I'm a bit of a partisan about historical methodology. I really believe in history as a way of thinking and a framework, but my entire life has been in some sort of interdisciplinary setting uh, with a lot of social science scientists. So, obviously, studying NAFTA and all that, I was talking to economists and political scientists and things like that. But I, I wrote a lot of it at the Center for U.S.-Mexican Studies at UC San Diego under fellowship. And there I was talking to immigration scholars and political people who did political economy and all sorts of stuff like that. And that was really rich. And then when I was at Cornell for 19 years, I was at the School of Industrial and Labor Relations. And then I was, again, with economists and political scientists and lawyers. And, and so uh, it's only been in the last uh, six years since I moved to Vanderbilt that I've actually been pretty much just in my tribe of of historians and 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 in some ways i think maybe this is the most historical book Um,
1: interesting hey you opened your 2010 staying alive uh the 1970s and the last days of the working class with an epigraph from uh uh, john steinbeck which reads and fear the time when the strikes stop while the great owners live for every little beaten strike is proof." that the step is being taken. Um, this book previews some of your themes, I think, in in the latest, Freedom's Dominion. You, you may not agree. I think including the white working class in the North and its attraction to the populism and anti-statism um, engendered or certainly uh, brought up by George Wallace. How would you share the themes in your narrative uh, here uh, with its links to your own understanding of events and and your portrayal of them in your latest uh freedoms dominion
2: well first of all i want to uh give you a compliment uh that book came out uh what 12 years ago and nobody has ever publicly mentioned that epigraph Uh, but that steinbeck quote uh which is from the grapes of wrath really kind of encapsulates it like workers lose strikes all the time but when they stop that's you know when they stop struggling that's when we have to worry, and you know, and after PATCO, the strike rate w- went down close to statistically zero. And so um, the professional air traffic controller strike in 1981, when Ronald Reagan busted the the union. So, uh, so anyway, hats off to you for picking up on that because I love I love that Steinbeck quote. Yeah, so I think understanding the connections probably requires understanding what this new book is about a little bit first, maybe. Um, so Freedom's Dominion is about this little out of the way county in Alabama that most people have never heard of, called Barbara County. And it's history of resistance to federal power since the 1820s, 1830s. And the punchline, of course, is that George Wallace is from this county. And George Wallace is the most famous, the segregationist governor of Alabama. But I sort of retool him a little bit and show him to be a freedom fighter in his own sense of what freedom is. And most people are going to say, because George Wallace plays a big role in staying alive. And most people are going to say that I selected this place because of George Wallace, but I didn't. I I found the place and I I got very intrigued by this this little place in southeast Alabama on the Chattahoochee River um, just because it spoke to me. And it was later I found out about George Wallace. And that made it seem like fate at that point, that, okay, now the connective tissue is obviously there between staying alive, where I, I look at how Wallace uh, begins to shift working class identity uh, in the post-war era away from economic issues and over towards race and anti-statism and and that political strategist Kevin Phillips said he embodied people moving from a democratic past to a Republican future. And that sort of Wallace factor became so important in the politics of the 1970s whether it was Wallace himself or just the way Nixon using this same ideas the way Reagan used the same ideas that you could you could move economic in- interests over to cultural values And if you could do that then then you could win on patriotism masculinity, freedom, uh, all these sorts of questions and uh, get people move people away from their economic interests and that was the essence of staying alive and uh and now yeah the connection seems pretty clear now that you mention it
1: (laughs) hey so I wanted to uh maybe sidetrack us here a little bit on, on this idea of the polarized divide in American society you know George Packer had characterized it in his uh Fourth of July piece in the Atlantic in 2021 and it was called how America fractured into four parts And it's the subtitle, though, that I I think is a mouthful. People in the United States no longer agree on the nation's purpose, values, history, or meaning. And then this kind of um, rhetorical question, is reconciliation possible? I don't expect you to remember the piece or the book itself. But he divides American society into four parts uh, with some overlap, of course. Mm -hmm. Free America, smart America, real America, and just America. How did or does his analysis seem to you in terms of background context for someone trying to get a fix on American society presently?
2: Yeah, that, I, I like that article. Um, it's 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 provocative. Um, and of course, when you say "just America," it doesn't mean simply America; it means a, a justice-oriented, more woke America. And so, I, I find that useful. And Packer has been a little bit of a connection point in my work, um, because he also wrote Blood of the Liberals about his family roots in in Alabama. Um, And so a number of kind of connections with his work. So I like that. Um, So his Free America is kind of what I'm talking about in its most enduring sense. But I think the Free America floods into all the other dimensions of America. And I I think it's becomes, you know, it's definitely connected to the real America, the sort of gritty populist working class America who have that kind of anti-statist dimension. It it connects to the just America who have a sense of looking towards a sense of freedom for their their ideas about justice. Um, So I think in some ways, because freedom is the American creed, is the core value that Americans put forth as who they are. I think it, in some ways, it's, it's, it's the one that has the most powerful resonance. Now, my one critique of Packer's work on that is that like a lot of us, including myself for a long time, the implicit comparison is the post-war era. So yeah, everything fell apart as compared to the New Deal period, right? The, the, the period from the 30s to the 70s when there was sort of a more cohesive political culture, shared values, Cold War culture, et cetera. cetera. But that's what I was trying to do in The Great Exception was to destabilize that and say, that period does not make for a really good comparative framework because it stands out in a very particular way. It's not like the rest of American history. And so what I think the kinds of things that, that George is talking about in that article resonate really with the late 19th century pretty effectively in a lot of ways my argument is what you see is less transformation away from a golden age than you do a sort of regression to the mean right <laughs> of american history uh you're going back to uh, deeper patterns um that escaped the shadow of the new De- of the great depression the new deal franklin
1: roosevelt thanks for sharing that hey one one last uh, and i think necessary diversion here your 2016 book the, the great exception, as you mentioned, the New Deal and and the limits of American politics. Your dedication uh, to open the book was to Nick, who taught me history, voice, and friendship. Do you mind sharing a bit about this, at, at least with regard to history and voice? I, I think a lot about these terms. And I'm curious about what you, uh, as an award-winning writer of history, <laughs> means by voice, especially in relation to history.
2: Wow. Yeah. Well, you you asked about the trials and tribulations of writing Capital Moves, my dissertation, and I could tell you all sorts of crazy stories about that, from you know being pulled over by the police in Mexico and stuff like that. But the the writing of the Great Exception was actually one of the more torturous things. Um, it began with an article that Nick Salvatore and I wrote together called "The Long Exception: Rethinking the New Deal in American Politics," and that that article he and I sort of organic, we, 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 he's, our offices were right next to each other. He's a very noted biographer of Eugene Debs and, uh, this kind of unknown janitor named Amos Weber and, uh, CL Franklin, Aretha Franklin's father is a great preacher in Detroit. And, uh, but he, he always has this sort of brings up a, a really rich class and race and sensibility to his characters. And, but not always the most popular opinions with regard to those things. And so he and I started, we wrote this article, we banged it out. Uh, there was a product of our post-teaching conversations. We both taught at the same time. We'd come back, we'd just talk, and we both were sort of on the same page on this and sort of seeing this period as a as a different kind of block than, um, than the previous. So then we decided to write a book. And we promised each other that if the book got in the way of our friendship, which was very deep, we would not continue it. Well, it did get in the way of our friendship and in a big way and we still continued it and we were idiots and went against our own sort of prime directive on this and ended up barely speaking to each other for a while and we gave up on the project and then I, I tried to move on and I couldn't. And so every time I sat down, I kept thinking about that book project. So one summer I just sat in my study and I assembled everything we have and I cranked it out and I gave it to him and I said, change whatever you want here's Here's my manuscript, change anything you want, put your name on it. Let's end this and uh he read it and he said it's yours. you just you own this and um you know, I just saw him last month um and i I love this man very dearly so what what do I mean by but he taught me history voice and friendship that that's how I learned about friendship right how how you can heal a relationship against all odds sometimes despite what damage you you may have done to it. And um and 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 put that behind you. History, just talking to the guy about history almost every day when I was at Cornell was 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 so wonderful. And you know, his everybody should read those biographies, uh, starting with the Eugene Debs biographies, Eugene Debs Citizen and Socialist, which won the Bancroft Prize, most prestigious prize in American history. And then uh the voice, which I think is the essence of your question, and I'm sort of winding around to that question. It works on a couple of things. One is trusting your historical analysis and instincts enough to go against the grain of the the prevailing trends in American historiography so for me to put the phrase the last days of the working class in staying alive that was when I first began to realize that I, I was sort of learning it's a sense of courage I guess to to report honestly what you're seeing because I think my field of origin was uh, a little too powerfully ideologically driven It, it that put a blinders on it that, that prevented it from, I think, seeing kind of what was happening. And so by declaring this at least temporarily kind of uh, moribund paradigm in, in, the, in the way American politics work, that is class, um, and which I write in sort of tragic tones, I think, that that was the first time I was like, oh, okay. I think I I think I know what it's like to just sort of go against the wind here. So th- what's interesting about that book is it's received better outside of labor history than it is inside labor history. Um, and it was the same with the Great Exception, and which we wrote together, which was basically saying the great period, the period of working class triumph, the period of of declining inequality, the period of mobilization of workers into institutional frameworks and unions and all that kind of stuff, and legalization and all that. We're not going back. Uh, Whatever comes next is going to be different because so much of my world, my intellectual world, was. Well, how do we get back? How do we revive this? How do we get back to this? And um, and so having that voice, word in in that dedication was really about me having the courage of my convictions, uh, even when it meant challenging much of the fundamentals. I think of my field.
1: Nice. No, it's nice to. You know, put some some meat on that word that oh, hey, you like put to... me on the couch,
2: man. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so uh, it's not necessarily as you were saying there. It's not really a repudiation of the E.P. Thompson thing. Uh, look, he he had his own style and voice and approach to things that were right for the context of his own times. But on the other hand, you live in a different world. Yeah.
2: Right. Yeah. And, and right. So there's a generational, a bit of generational patricide going on, I suppose, here where uh, that I also saw that the people like that trained me in many ways were deeply influenced by the new social movements of the 1960s. Right. They, they read Thompson and then they saw the social movements in the streets of the United States, the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement, the women's movement, the gay rights movement. And and they saw revealed before them exactly what they had studied in in this. And I was raised in the eighties, a very different time, a very a much a much darker time for progressive politics and and the rest. And and so um, I, I didn't I didn't have that those reference points. I think it made me think quite differently about labor history. And social history and social movements um, and, and how they work and the obstacles that are deeply ingrained in the American experience that create difficulties for um, the possibility of, of, of fundamental change. Not that I'm against uh, trying, but um, uh, it's just I think it's a eyes right. wide open kind of approach to history.
1: And and I can't help but kind of just interject here just to sidetrack us a bit more uh, um so so hey so where do you feel like uh the materialistic versus say idealistic interpretation of of things uh, comes into play and then you know i hesitate to say the marxist view of things but when you but as soon as you say materialistic it seems like the m words kind of merge there <laughs>
2: Yeah, um, uh, you know uh, that's a great. That's uh, a oof, man. So, how do you talk about? And just just in case anybody gets confused, when we talk about materialism, we're talking about a materialist uh, interpretation of history, not you know the desire for a new TV. Um, so, how do you place that? In your analysis, that sort of that that structure matters. That, that material circumstances matter. That the struggle over material issues matter, but not but shed the determinism, um, and open up the 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 range of subjectivities that are embedded in that material order, right? Um, I think is is uh, really what I try to do. Um, so. You don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? There's a lot useful in Marx and Gramsci and E.B. Thompson and all that stuff. But to say that that means we're at point A and we're destined to point B is grossly naive to the point of being silly. And what really matters is getting into the range of subjectivities, experiences, ideological outlooks, and things like that, that people, especially working people, common folks, use in understanding that world. And it's not, you know, it's not a straight line from the shop floor to the revolution um, by any stretch of the imagination, I think. Um, but that doesn't mean that the, that I want to uh, give up on structure. So even in this new book, I, you know, this is deeply embedded in the cotton economy chattel slavery settler colonialism core elements that are are very very structural but
1: that's not ultimately
2: the question i'm looking at
1: well hey let me uh move us on thanks for uh you know humoring me on the side notes there Um, i haven't haven't relived those, those books in a while so that was fun hey your final chapter of the book is titled the era of big government is not over uh, and then in parentheses, you put, uh, but the New Deal probably is. And and I focus on it only because uh, of the anti-statism uh, theme that runs through staying alive. And, and can you share a bit about your thinking in that chapter as emblematic uh, for the book more broadly?
2: Yeah, thanks for picking up on that. Yeah, I think that's juxtaposed. I think it's that one with a picture of Obama as the new FDR. Uh, a political cartoon. Um, yeah, so uh, this is this is one of the lessons I try to teach my students, which is government isn't the question. The size of the government isn't the question. That's a political football. The growth of government, the size of government, but the government—it doesn't, you know. Besides Calvin Coolidge, it does. It doesn't really shrink. Uh, you know, it it can. The question about federal power is whose side is it on? And so by saying. The era of big government is not over. Using the, Clinton, the Bill Clinton quote, uh, I'm saying the size of the government's going to continue, the power of the federal establishment is going to continue, but then by that parenthetical, but the New Deal might be over. I'm saying that those federal resources are no longer going to be used on behalf of working people. That the federal government is largely um, going to prop up the economic order. And of course in 2007 2008 that's exactly what it was used for with workers getting very little uh from that massive expenditure in propping up the financial economy i mean they they profited by having an economic system that wasn't in a complete tailspin of course but um but it
1: was there was no social bargaining really involved in that um moving forward thanks for sharing a bit of uh, some of your previous work and and some of the themes uh You've been grappling uh, with for some time. and uh, seriously, do appreciate your explication, especially given the somewhat idiosyncratic nature of my questions as as ways uh, into your thinking. So anyways, disclaimers aside, uh, let's let's focus now on the main event, uh, your most recent uh, the two thousand twenty two uh, basic books publication of Freedom's Dominion a saga of white resistance to federal power. A quick organizational overview of its 400-page-plus narrative shows you divided it into main themes, starting with uh, Book 1, Titled Land, Book 2, Citizenship, uh, Book 3, Federal Power in Repose, and lastly, uh, Book 4, Democracy. You bookend these, so to speak, uh, with an introduction and conclusion the introductory chapter uh, well sets the context for your larger narrative and is titled George Wallace and American Freedom it really does highlight the main event the one-time amateur boxer a liberal judge moderate segregationist state representative and later governor of the state of Alabama if I had production staff working with me here, this is where you might hear, Leonard Skiddard's A Sweet Home Alabama, and it's 1974 lyrics rising in the background. <laughs> um, A sweet Home Alabama, oh sweet home, uh, where, are the, where the skies are so blue and the governor's true. And the reference uh, would have been to Wallace. Can you set the context here for listeners? What is it about the juxtaposition of George Corley Wallace from Southeast Alabama and the foundational idea of American freedom that you found promising as the counterintuitive threads for your narrative?
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it
2: great setup that the uh, there's an ambiguous chorus behind that that we love the 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 governor line where they go boo 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 in the background on that song which i've always uh, tried to parse out but i think it was merely production um anyway uh yes so wallace is such a fascinating character and uh as we've already discussed much of my work is kind of in an orbit around this character, at least this character's ideas. So I begin with his most, you know, he's most famous for saying segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever at his inaugural address in January 1963, for standing in the schoolhouse door to try to prevent the integration of the University of Alabama, for his presidential runs that destabilize the Democratic and Republican binary. But what I do, I, I go back and look at that famous segregation speech in the opening, and I say, he mentioned segregation four times. And this is what he's famous for, right? The three times for that famous, infamous mm-hmm. phrase, phrasing, which was written by Asa Carter, a Klansman, and, and then one other time. But he mentions freedom and liberty over two dozen times, or two dozen times, I would say. So what's going on there? What is he talking about? Why is he talking about, about freedom so much? And what does that mean? Well, in his world, there's this this federal force is always just sort of on the horizon. And I I picture in his imagination these, you know, the legions of federal bayonets right on the hillside above town, ready to descend upon the innocent people of follow Alabama, or or Clio, or Clayton, or any other towns I study in this. And they are going to subvert the freedom, the God-given freedom of white people and and then that begs the question: what does this freedom mean, and why is the federal government the enemy of freedom and I trace this using uh this guy orlando Patterson, historical sociologist uh at harvard i um I look at uh freedom and a kind of an- aspect of freedom we don't talk about very much, and that is the freedom to dominate that this isn't just the freedom to not be a slave that's how we would think about it like I'm not a slave, I'm free. But what about the freedom to enslave? What about the freedom to control? The freedom to dominate? The freedom to live in freedom's dominion, as I, as I use in the title. And the federal government is, is the constant threat to that. Not a, not a very effective threat, but a, but a constant threat. And a great source of political theater and rhetoric that the feds are coming to get your freedom. That's what Wallace used throughout. Uh, people focused on the segregation and thinking, "Oh, this freedom stuff is just rhetorical patina to to cover his racism." But I I actually think that the freedom part is central to how he understood things. And if you if you're just a snarling racist, you're only going to get so far. If you're fighting the federal power on this sort of freedom to dominate this white freedom, as I call it. You're gonna get a lot more people, right? You're gonna get moderates. You're gonna get rich people who want to curtail taxes. You're gonna get, you know, people who don't want busing. You're gonna get people who don't want school integration. You're gonna get a lot of people who don't wanna necessarily make a claim on directly on race. But if you're declaring your freedom from federal power, you're gonna you're gonna get a
1: lot more people. No, you you make some some points there. In fact, you you opened the book. I didn't mention this by dedicating it. A- uh, to those who have kept faith in a better freedom uh, uh, which says a lot I think uh, because the the reader uh, then sees uh, a, a, a picture on the next page of uh, George Wallace campaigning in 1958 before his hometown crowd it's an again a nice visual um, and then you add a uh, kind of a caption there it says Wallace amplified a message of freedom as white resistance to federal power that defined the politics of his native barber county and much of the nation since the 1830s yeah and and
2: that was the real revelation is how deep this went right and 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 this connects to a lot of our other conversations about continuities and ruptures in american history right like and 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 this to me my editors right out of the bat were like is this a story of continuity or not And I was like, I had to really decide. Yeah. Yes. This is about, you know, a lot of ups and downs, but this is a story of continuity. And um, from some of the most enduring ideas going all the way back to the Madisonian Republic footnote though, that dedication, since we're doing inside baseball, I originally dedicated to my wife. And she said she didn't want her name on this thing at all. So. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Uh,
1: Well, um, all right. Well, so as if, as if that, inside baseball bit there is not enough for listeners mm-hmm. um you do offer readers uh james baldwin quote uh that history is and and it's a fairly famous quote but one of the lines or one of the parts of it is uh, is history is literally present in all that we do and it, it's part of an ebony magazine piece that uh was aptly titled the white man's guilt um hmm. well while, while reading the book, I find myself going back to what amounts, I think, to your own uh you mentioned uh Patterson three note chord previewing your your book's uh, broader themes. That is I, I felt aspirational, as you put it, better freedom. Uh and then the instrumental version using the picture and eighteen thirties uh connection. And and that is really a Wallace-sized freedom, and and then finally uh, the implications, as articulated uh, by Baldwin uh, in 1965, in that epigraph that you that you put there. Anyways, I don't know where the question in in. <laughs> well, I mean, two two points on that. Continuing the insider writer's
2: life that you've opened up on this is I wrote this thing with a big picture of Jim James Baldwin uh, right over my shoulder, uh, staring down at me. Because, you know, he he threw out a challenge to white people. Uh, You know, he says, we're not the problem. White people are the problem. Uh, A lot of African-American writers and activists, intellectuals have said, you know, uh, we've been problematizing black people since day one. Uh, Let's flip the script here. And that's what I'm doing. Um, There's a rich, rich, rich literature on... You know, the slave communities, uh, Black resistance during Reconstruction and Jim Crow and, and all this, and this is wonderful stuff. But I wanted to get at this other dimension, which is why do white people behave the way they behave? What do they believe and why? So that's what this book's about.
1: Thanks for the, uh, the meta commentary there. The, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, OK, so um, as you wrote in the introduction. Uh, This book is about, since we're talking about those things, the idea and practice of a specific kind of freedom uh, in the very place George Wallace elegized in his speech. That is uh, Barber County, Alabama, and its main town, uh, Eufaula. Um, Your ground level narrative laced within a larger time frame with recurring implications uh, for the president. I'm thinking also though of capital moves and staying alive. Hey, do you do you agree uh there's a method and a skill you honed in your writing your earlier works that you bring to bear in Freedom's Dominion? Uh Keith, uh, you are a close reader.
2: I'm going to, you know, hats off to you. You really you you take your job seriously. Um and I appreciate that. Uh very much. Yeah, for sure. This book is required all my historical chops. Um, I had rarely ventured before 1930 in my history writing. And so I had to break out of my paradigm, but the continuities I think are are, are real. Um, and I'm looking at some of the elements that make American political development unique and why it's different than a lot of other, I mean, every, every society is unique. In its political development. But there are some real remarkable outliers in terms of how U.S. developed. And, and what I found in Freedom's Dominion, in this community study, for lack of a better word, is the deeper story of what I was trying to talk about in the later books, or the earlier books, I mean. Problems I've been trying to investigate in my earlier books, I found to have roots that go all the way back to the earliest part of the Republic. So in some ways it's kind of the prehistory of
1: all of my earlier work. Mm, nice. No, it's interesting. I I, I think that it, it seems somewhat apparent. It was pretty unconscious. I can't say I was like actually you know yeah, no, plotting hey, this out anyway. in Growing up we used to go camping and and um you probably don't remember uh Dr. Bronner and um there was all one like, god faith yeah all one right on the, the all that i feel like there is kind of a some some sort of a thing in the in the mind that that makes us want to put it all together and mm-hmm. and maybe at least bring it all together in, in in some way well you know that
2: it's interesting so the the act of synthesis is, is is really interesting and one thing i set out a challenge for myself in in this book and that is I'm going to I'm not going to tell a national story about white freedom. I'm going to fo- force myself into this narrow box called this one place, Barber County, and its relationship with federal power. And that is going to force me to be really honest about you can't cherry pick a story on the local level. The way, you know, I could tell a national story about whatever I want in different ways by by, by kind of synthesizing different quotes or events and stuff like that but this was like okay i'm gonna trace whatever happens here no matter what and 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 that was it was interesting and fun and challenging and scary and but yet it still has that synthetic arc of the of the history of the republic
1: yeah interesting and uh going back to that social science aspect to it that there's a case study aspect involved anyways You know, all one, Dr. Bronner. (laughs) Um, Well, hey, look, when we uh, spoke initially, um, I suggested perhaps it's time for classes. Still reading Robert Penn Warren's All the King's Men to switch to Jefferson (laughs) Cowie's Freedom's Dominion. You shared as well uh, that you kept a copy of it handy as you uh, wrote your latest book. Warren is, as you are well aware, Uh, wrote across the genres, including poetry. Um, In the correspondence of Carl Becker, uh, the historian, he wrote to a friend once that, hey, look, you can't teach people how to write. And and while I think I understand the sentiment, I I also know that um, there's many ways you can, in fact, help them, including uh, to gain a sense of style and, and approach to conceptual frameworks. Um, can you share a little of, of why Warren's work is important to you? Wow. Um, well, first of
2: all, the Robert Penn Warren Center is right around the corner from my office at Vanderbilt University, uh, which is where our Humanities Center is. So he, he's, he, he's alive at Vanderbilt, of course. Um, his earlier work on the agrarians, as part of the agrarians, uh, I, I he he wasn't didn't advance and I don't want to advance either, but his, his other stuff. um, And especially I would urge people to listen to his interviews with civil rights leaders that uh, I think they're actually online available through the Robert Penn Warren center at Vanderbilt. Really great stuff. Just really great. Um, But you know, those scenes in his novel where you can kind of smell the tobacco spit and feel the sweat and feel the, sociological pressures on particular individuals always resonated with me and 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 uh that's a little you know i you flatter me way beyond uh uh anything you should by even making a comparison but that's a little bit what i was trying to capture was kind of how individual people live out their lives in this broader kind of structural political economy that that i think he was also trying to do a little bit of i mean no way I was modeling myself after him but it was it was so i feel like i'm in very dangerous
1: terrain here <laughs> no thanks for, for for taking that on and 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 all that and it, well and thanks for sharing the idea that uh you were checking him out anyways i yeah no it, it comes with a little bit of there's some thorns on that rose Mm. um as they say um that's right well uh let me let me kind of move us along your introduction uh covers your book's uh conceptual framework it's an interesting I think or could be an interesting standalone piece uh in its own right before you move on uh to talk a little bit about the importance of the compound uh Republic and what you wrote there and I quote freedom's dominion is not so much a community study of barber county as it is a close analysis of those conflicting kinetic energies of the compound republic as they unfold in one place over time can, can you share a bit about that right so <clears throat>
2: going back to the original constitutional debates about what the nature of the united states was going to be and how it would be structured they came up with a sort of surprising move which was we're going to disperse power between state local state federal dimensions um and this would smooth everything out and appease a very powerful constituency that was afraid of too much federal power you know i mean a lot of people thought the constitution was essentially a coup against the articles of confederation um and you could certainly argue that so structurally this idea of local state and federal points of authority are supposed to kind of work in concert and the state is supposed to be the laboratory of democracy is. And so what I see is a conflicted whole, right? That this is a a whole, it's sort of at war with itself and that this smooth running machinery has a tendency to basically be uh, a never ending source of conflict. And I think we, Obviously, you see that today. It feeds into this idea of freedom because the definition of freedom I'm working with resonates most effectively on the local level. I am standing for the freedom of this place, however you define that. This town, this county, the state. And states' rights are obviously part of this. The federal power, federal authority becomes the enemy of that local freedom. It's a threat to that local freedom. Even though most of what the federal government does is in favor of local white people, the sort of political conflict that's seeded into this, into this model of the compound republic really um, is ripe for this kind of conflict over who's in control, who's in charge, who can say, who has power, who has the vote, who has economic rights, who has, you know, um, and and that's the juice, that's the richness. That's where I really got excited about this project because uh, it, it is in many ways, the central conflict of American history.
1: Nice. Let me ask you this. Your transition at the end of the introduction, and again, as mentioned, which followed the James uh, Baldwin epigraph from uh, The White Man's Guild, and you aptly titled your introduction, George Wallace and American Freedom. I look forward to the movie. (laughs) It's going to be a long movie. (laughs) And it's just a matter of Who narrates the opening scene? I imagine someone like Morgan Freeman uh, from The Unforgiven or Kevin Costner in Dances with (laughs) Wolves doing the voiceover. And so I wanted to ask you if you would uh, indulge us a bit here uh, with just a a kind of a a brief reading of that end of your introduction that then leads us into book one.
2: I'd be happy to. Um, And since you're talking about, other forms of narration: a uh, plug for the audiobook, which is re- uh, read by a guy named Andre Japoy, and he uh, has this rich Louisiana accent, and it's, nice. it's it, it, yeah, he does a, a wonderful job uh, of reading this thing, and he does the voices and it's very, very uh,
1: effective and dramatic. that's so, on Amazon or audible? Yeah, or
2: wherever you, you know you can get audible sure. books.: Thanks for asking me to read this. I, I like this scene too. This is the uh, last two short paragraphs of the introduction before book one called Land. Like many good tales, this one begins when a stranger comes to town. A single rider approached a village of white settlers in the summer of 1832. The white residents had seized prime land on a bluff overlooking the Chattahoochee River, known among the Native Americans as Ufala Town. There, the white intruders had built a settlement in violation of a federal treaty signed with the Creek Indians. The interlopers drove the Ufala Creeks from their ancestral home, seizing their crops and depriving them of any of their means of subsistence. The approaching rider was a federal marshal. Before he left,
1: he burned the white settlement down. Nice. And um, by that, I mean a nice transition to book one land. Uh, Can you share a bit here uh, with listeners about the efforts of then uh, Secretary of War Lewis Cass of the Jackson administration? and the federal marshals he sent down to Barber county alabama to enforce the 1832 treaty of caseta with the muscogee creek indian people uh meanwhile uh the larger conceptual overlay of both um the jeffersonian ideal of settler access to federal lands and the notion of a compound republic as you talked about a bit there both in play. In in other words, can you do the impossible? Can you, <laughs> can you give us your best Cliff Notes version of Book One while simultaneously <laughs> maintaining the page turning drama of Freedom's Dominion? <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. Well,
2: that setup quote that you just try you you asked me to read it says it all, right? Because there you see federal authority coming in to challenge local whites freedom to do whatever the heck they want. And in this case, it was steal Native American lands. But the weird thing is, wait a minute, rewind the tape. What's going on? This is federal power under Andrew Jackson's administration siding with the Indians. And that's not the story, right? That's not the narrative we get. Um, and uh, early on, uh, somebody read a chapter said, oh, you're a Jackson revisionist. And I said, I guess I am. I I, I don't know. But uh, I don't want to let Jackson off the hook. So the, the dominant narrative of Jacksonian America is, as you say, a sort of realization of the Jeffersonian ideal of uh, allowing white access to land, Western lands. And this is basically the old Southwest, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi. And so Jackson's entire career had been pushing Indians out of this region under force and hook and crook and all sorts of horrible you know, this is the guy of the Trail of Tears, right? But in this case, he had signed a treaty with what remained of the Creek lands and this sort of nine county belt along the Chattahoochee River on the border near Georgia. And he was determined to protect it. Um, It was his treaty. Um, His long game was to get all the Indians west of the Mississippi. But for now, Uh, they had a a five-year deal with the Creeks. They would privatize the land. The Creeks would get it. They could do whatever they want with it, and they would be protected from white intrusion. And Jackson was good on his word. And I don't think it's necessarily – he had some sympathy for Native Americans on occasion. um, uh, But I think uh, the one thing Jackson believed in is Andrew Jackson, and uh, he wanted his treaty enforced. So he sent these – there's all these white intruders are flooding in, uh, in from Georgia into Alabama into these uh, this protected area and so it's creating all sorts of problems. The Indians are practically starving and so Jackson and Cass send in these poor hapless federal marshals to remove all the white intruders. It was a sort of you know uh, quixotic assignment uh, and in, in the summer of 1832 they said these white people are violating the Treaty of Cassetta. Please remove them <laughs> and so he's like okay and 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 um so i i begin the next chapter with this kind of this federal marshal crawford trying to figure out how best to do this and finding that if he was really going to enforce the will of the federal government it was going to take you know a lot of force because he would remove them and they'd come back they were sort of like water just flowing into um into this region and um So this sets up a key element of the story, which is the federal government's sort of partial measures. Had they actually gone in there and really done it right with a lot of troops and set this up and said, this is the Creek Nation. End of story. You're out of here. It might have been different. But they went in and they said, you guys need to go. And they had a few, you know, they had some troops and it was just enough to create drama. And to threaten the sense of white freedom, of access to land, this Jeffersonian dream of filling the continent with, with yeomen, uh, independent yeomen, right, who own their land. And that the federal government at that very point becomes the enemy of white Americans' freedom to own land. And this plays out over the course of five or six years until finally the creeks rise up and actually fight, try to drive the intruders out on their own even though they begged the federal government for more um, enforcement. This is sort of the weird thing. The the Creeks are begging Jackson and Cass to bring in more power, more troops, because they understand that the federal government, and this is another theme of the book, that the federal government is their source, is a resource in their fight with unruly Democratic white locals. Long story short, the whole thing breaks apart, the Indians rise up, and then the federal government swoops in on siding with the white intruders and drive the Creeks out for good where they actually start. You follow Oklahoma uh, after they're driven west to the reservation territories.
1: No, it's a, it's a gripping part of the narrative, really. And um, and I think really for, for many listeners who may be unfamiliar uh, with that particular Southeast American history, it's hey, well worth a read there. And that whole bit about uh, the creating of the martyr of um, <laughs> Hardiman Owen. And geez, I, it literally is a scene out of a movie where he dynamites uh cabin. His own cabin. He, right, and then invites the federal marshal to come in for a meeting. You couldn't script that. Though,
2: <laughs> yeah, a yeah, little, little Sam Peckinpah there. Uh, yeah, so when Hardiman Owen is this sort of rascally character, uh one of the main intr- intruders who just wants to resist federal power at all odds and he does all these tricks like you say like trying to blow them up in his own house uh and finally draws on federal troops and the federal troops shoot him and when the federal troops shoot him this one trooper shot him in the head then now you have melodrama right now you have the story of federal troops shooting an innocent freedom loving alabamian and you've got yourself a martyr and now you've set up the fight against the federal government in perfect terms even though this guy was
1: a horrible human being he's a grave robber he was you know it's like yeah no you have some great uh <laughs> descriptions in there of the kind of stuff that uh, I mean the the way he beat and treat people uh so interesting justification and like you say i mean our um, protagonist there the federal government Really, uh just needed to come in well, maybe not. It's easy to say this now, but but on the other hand, your argument in in part is, hey, we should have stepped in with some real force and right and and if you go back to the old federalists,
2: um that is those in favor of more federal power under the constitution they they did do that I mean, uh they wanted to prevent settlers from running willy nilly across the west because it was creating all sorts of headaches. For them militarily and politically um and they were much more aggressive in policing the actions of white people against uh, native americans and so you know this this is where we see the sort of freedom loving anti statist dimension really beginning to uh ripen in the 1830s and figures another surprise for me was the role of francis scott key of all people he goes in and he this is another character that you see throughout the book these kind of milk toast characters who go in and, and and create these compromises that essentially sell out the local people of color, basically, um, whether it's uh, Indians or African Americans later, and um, these sort of instruments of, of federal power that choose not to really uh, make a stand.
1: It's a recurring theme, and as lead-in, because uh, your your book two is entitled Citizenship and this is a key section of the book and as you point out uh during reconstruction when our uh minor protagonists in the form of us federal troops stood up for african americans and their right to vote it became apparent by 1874 that the idea of a backlash uh was no inconsequential term in the lexicon of American history. Can you tell us the story you conveyed so well in book two and and how it resonates with some of the work, if if, if you think this is so, of your colleague, Professor Glitman at Cornell, and his articulation of backlash dynamics as one of our nation's defining patterns? And I'm thinking here especially of black people shot dead for expressing their right to vote can can you frame that important story and its significance for a polarized america
2: that's right um
1: yeah so quick
2: background on that question is this fight along the Chattahoochee with the indians and the federal government this was for some of the most valuable land in the world this is prime black belt cotton growing land and cotton is gold, right? So fast forward all the way to the end of the Civil War and the question is there's 4 million free black people in America and what do they get? The settlement of the Civil War under Reconstruction and the terms of that settlement are a huge messy conflicted contest that you know we could go on for hours about. But the bottom line was federal power as it had under the Indian period, federal power mattered, that the civil, economic, and political rights of freed people after the war depended upon vigorous federal enforcement in the South. And under military reconstruction, they were there, right? There were troops there enforcing this. And the white people went through all these machinations and tricks and crazy stunts and alliances to try to get rid of... Grant, President Grant to try to get rid of Reconstruction, all this kind of stuff. But by eighteen seventy four, things were working pretty well for democracy and, and freedom. They'd elected a, a black congressman uh to the United States uh Congress. They had uh, they had local officials, they had a white judge who was sympathetic to black people, and, and you know, the franchise was working until this November eighteen seventy four election that you alluded to when White people had it and decided they would just shoot them. And as black voters were lined up to shoot in the high noon sky uh, of uh, that election day, they just released a hail of bullets on these people and shot probably 80 people. We don't really know the exact number and destroyed black democracy almost 100 years. And this was called redemption, i.e. redeeming the republic for white people, right? And there were black, there were federal troops on the ground there, and the African American voters thought they had the protection of federal power, uh, but it turns out, as in so often the case, the federal enforcement was often clay footed and inadequate. And in this case, they had orders to stand down and not intervene, and the African American voters did not know this. The white elite did know this, is my sense, and um, and so they they opened fire, and that was the really the end of. Vigorous federal enforcement of voting rights in America. And this backlash, as you say, uh, which is a term that really emerges in the early 60s around George Wallace, is in action, right? White people are like, we're not going to accept the federal government. We're not going to accept uh, black voting rights. Uh, and we're going to push, or even citizenship, and we're going to push against this. And so you have this equal and opposite reaction kind of uh, approach to politics uh, that we call the backlash. And Larry Glickman is working on a book on this as a sort of the major theme of American history. And not only does it create a backlash, but what I think the most interesting aspect of the argument that he's developing is, is that it constrains activity before it takes place mm-hmm. because you're afraid of the backlash. So you're already restrained in how you act because you're afraid of the backlash. And so then that's where we that's what we see in the Indian case and that's what we see in the African-American case. When Francis Scott Key is in Indian, is 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 in the um, Creek Nation, he's afraid of antagonizing. He's afraid of civil war. Uh, when he's there, he's not just a milk toast politician. He's actually he is, but he's also actually afraid of fomenting civil war, and so he's trying to create this compromise to avoid that. And then, and I think you see the same thing a little bit in the 1870s, where people are afraid of massive resistance, as it would be called in the civil rights era, uh, of local whites against federal authority. And so they they need to kind of appease their way out of the situation.
1: Wow. Yeah. So it's it's an interesting uh, concept. And I was thinking to myself, it's a a bit like uh, self-censorship, right? right, That kind of thing, Mm -hmm. which has all sorts of implications, large and small. Book three, uh, Federal Power in Repose. Your third part begins after Reconstruction with our minor protagonist, the U.S. federal government, in a real sense, unable to rise to the public policy occasion. You make clear uh, that the impotence of federal policy during this historical period was, in a word, and I quote, glaring. (laughs) This is evidenced by your reinterpretation of themes like convict leasing, lynching, the Jim Crow state constitution and labor relations within the framework of a local white sovereignty, all as you say unconstrained by federal power. Hey, what's your key takeaway and real draw as to why listeners should seriously engage here with with your narrative?
2: Yeah, this was the trickiest section to write because you're. I was trying to account for the absence of something the federal government gives up and says. South can, it needs to run its own affairs. We can't, we can't intervene. And the cost is unwilling. The North is not willing to incur the, the cost of enforcing this. And just what this unleashes is this really dark, almost sort of libidinal version of white freedom Um, that, that allows some of the worst aspects of human behavior to be, unleashed, this kind of white freedom loose on the land. And this is what the world kind of looks like under unrestrained white freedom or freedom to dominate. Um, So the rise of convict leasing in the prison mines, which which is just this, you know, sending leased convicts into deadly occupation um, is masterminded kind of by this local elite named JW Comer from Barber County. Uh, There's no mining in Barber County, but he masterminds the trafficking of convicts and lynching, obviously uh, probably the most provocative chapter in the book is titled lynching as an act of freedom. And again, we were talking about voice a little bit earlier to get to the point of saying that was a challenge. And, um, and, and, and all the rest of these things uh, really happen as the federal government is, is pulled back and the rule of law becomes whatever power, can afford on the local level yeah
1: sure and and but there is some transition especially as the rise of the new deal state comes along you uh mentioned in particular that the uh governor from Barber County in the 1940s even fought fair employment practices uh proclaiming as as you put it and again you're quoting when the government at Washington uh through its executive or judicial branches undertakes to force upon a status standard which it does not and will not accept it is a denial of freedom
2: right yeah so the fair employment practices commission you know was uh, basically to integrate wartime production and this it's the precursor to the equal employment opportunity commission of today when this federal incursion comes in you know they're like you can't do this. This is this is the way we do things. This is our right. This is our freedom. This is our privilege to run employment relations the way we want. And for the federal government to come in here and tell us we have to hire black people, it's outrageous.
1: It's easy, I suppose, people could point and say, well, hey, it's easy for you guys to sit back there uh, 80, 90 years later and uh, comment on it um, mm-hmm. without
2: being there. And Chauncey Sparks, that governor, is a moderate. You know, um, he's trying to keep the status quo, you know. We're back to that kind of backlash question a little bit. Um, he's trying to keep the status quo running. He's not he's not a rabid segregationist.
1: That yeah, no, it's interesting. Book four, which sets up the the final, really the final section, the final theme of the book. It's called Democracy. And I want to start from an imprinting. A kind of book from youth. Um, it was, and and I know you're familiar with it, uh, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, uh, 72, Hunter S. Thompson, that both dates me and pigeonholes me. But like Robert Pam Warren's All the King's Men, which I mentioned earlier, I was also reminded in reading uh, your book of this classic Thompson piece. At at one point, and not nearly halfway through the book, he writes about covering the 1972 presidential campaign in Wisconsin. and, And I quote, it was the first time I'd ever seen Wallace in person. There were no scats in the hall. Everybody was standing. The air was electric even before he started talking. And by the time he was five or six minutes into his spiel, I had a sense that the bastard had somehow levitated himself and was hovering over us. It reminded me of a Janis Joplin concert. Anybody who doubts the Wallace appeal should go out and catch his act sometime. He jerked this crowd around in Serb Hall, like he had them all on wires. They were laughing, shouting, whacking each other on the back. It was a flat out fire and brimstone performance. (laughs) Uh, So Thompson uh, was on Wallace in, in much the same appreciative but critical way that you are in Freedom's Dominion. Can you tease us a bit here with what you think we should understand about the man and his place in American politics? Wow.
2: Yeah. Uh, that, that Hunter S Thompson quote is great. He's, he's so insightful, just brilliant. Um, so Wallace rises from this kind of, this little place out of pure pluck and desire for political power. And my favorite quote about Wallace was, uh, you could drop him into the Albanian countryside and, and, you know, two years later, he'd be head of the Comintern, you know, um, uh, because it, he it, it was just a political beast, right? And, and he would pull whatever political lever he could to make it happen. So he starts as, as you mentioned, as a sort of moderate, even progressive. He wants to build roads and trade schools and doesn't want to get all messed up in race. And then by the late 50s and early 60s, he's ready to completely uh, ghost full bore on race and, and, and this version of white freedom. And the key moment – so he runs for president in 64, 68. And then seventy two, and that Serb Hall moment. There's actually one in that, that Serb Hall in Milwaukee became the revelation for Wallace that he was a national. His his ideas could go national. This wasn't a southern thing. This wasn't a southeast Alabama thing. This was a national idea, and that this anti federal power, anti statist freedom message could work in the industrial Midwest. And then he begins to begins to say things like, you know, the South isn't a place, it's a state of mind. And that that this is an American phenomenon. And even in his inaugural in 63, he 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 casts his vision across the entire nation. You know, you rock ribbed New Englanders and you Western, freedom freedom-loving Western people, he's already thinking about this, that this is this idea has national legs. And so his ability to draw together people like those Eastern European descendants in this club in Milwaukee, plus elite anti-tax people, plus you know the real crazies on the right—he he sometimes called his party the Squirrel Party because it attracted all the nuts—and um, that there was a coalition to be built around this idea, and that this was a, 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 a almost. Sparking loose wire in American politics, and if he could connect it up, he could he could make something happen. Of course, he's he was shot during the Maryland primary campaign in '72.
1: That, in some ways, is an interesting story in itself. And Thompson goes off on that, and it's part of uh, fear and loathing on on the campaign trail '72, which yeah. in a sense, which should be uh, required reading, I suppose, in in certain yeah. uh, certain courses.
2: I use fear and loathing. In staying alive, because that was a much more cultural study. I didn't use fear and loathing for this book. And now you're making me wonder if I should have. <laughs> uh,
1: no, no, I know. Uh, well, no, I know. He's I mean, just so I,
2: insightful. But this is such a.
1: Well, no, you know, he, I, there's a lot of ground to cover, and it wasn't. It's not about that. It, it was more about your narrative uh, sparked some things back from those days, and uh, and I, I I I just remember that. I mean, so the connection, of course, between Thompson and uh, R.P. Uh, Warren. Uh, is so far, uh, it's a little bit like trying to uh, pull in uh, uh, William S. Burroughs. You know, it's like, <laughs> right? It's like where do you, where do you stop with this kind of stuff? When I teach writing, I do teach the intro to Fear and Loathing
2: in Las Vegas, where they're driving out of Barstow, and he says, you know. The, the bat started flying all over my head. And, and uh, and, yeah, no, uh, hey,
1: no, there's some classic stuff there. I, I don't, I'm trying to, uh, distance myself from it. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh but, um, hey, that was actually what it clued me into, uh, um, wanting to read the 72 campaign stuff. Yeah. But, but, and the interesting thing about that was, is, geez, it's almost, it's well over 400 pages and it's not just a bunch of bullshit about, no, you no, know, no. Uh, That's what I John's thought it was through. at first, but it's, Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, you
2: you hear about the drugs and all this, but then the guy could drop a reality bomb like nobody's business, you know. There you go. Nice one. Yeah, reality bomb. Nice. Good. Um, Um, Well, hey. One other thing about the Wallace, Um, and that's the federal role in the civil rights movement, um, because it's so important. And and that Wallace, you know, Wallace is fighting federal power on the local and state level his whole life. And then, um, but he always fails. But he fails forward, so every time he loses to federal authority, he wins the popular mm. sentiment, and you know it's a little like Trump, right? You know, in 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 some ways. The the take yes yeah, so for the take home. The take home is not just about Wallace. The take home for me happened when I was doing research on the civil rights movement in Barber County, uh, when these act these activists are trying hard to register votes uh, during and after the Voting Rights Act, and Hosea Williams, uh, King's key lieutenant tries to make sense of all the data he has. And he's like, why are some counties really have really good registration numbers and other counties don't? And he's like, well, these these counties have good leadership. These counties have good organization. He can't figure out what it is. And then he finally finds the key variable to why some counties had successful voting registration drives. And it was the presence of a federal registrar. And so this is where we see that Again, it goes all the way back to the Creek stuff, right? That, that the power of federal authority in these places is key to um, protecting minority rights. And, and in this case, they weren't even minority rights. And so everybody recognized federal power as the essence of the problem. And Wallace fought against it. And most of the civil rights movement were essentially trying to trigger federal intervention. They don't want to just cross the Selma Bridge for the point of crossing the Selma Bridge. They want to cross the Selma Bridge to get the Voting Rights Act passed. Um, You know, that kind of thing. They're trying to trigger the federal government to come in, make people federal citizens, not local citizens. And that's what Hosea Williams saw in that voting registration data in the uh, fall of
1: 65. Thanks for sharing that. That really does kind of tie it all together and brings us all the way back to Marshall um, Crawford. Crawford yeah heading out to uh exactly head. no
2: exactly it's a, that continuity is exactly what i'm after right yeah nice yeah, And and <laughs> yeah. then the federal troops standing down during the election massacre in
1: 74 1874 it goes on and on so is it fair then it, when people say revisionist history uh, that that's not necessarily a bad thing is it or but right. it kind of right comes off that way sometimes yeah that that
2: that term got a bad rap, for sure. Basically, it means we're reinterpreting history in light of our, you know, how we see the world at this particular moment. The questions we ask, the sources we look at, the frameworks we engage, change. History is written on this kind of moving train, right, And uh, called time. And and so we're all revisionists in some ways. Um, and, but what it's been painted as, especially by people who are trying to discredit critical inquiry into the past, there's, oh, well, we knew what, we know the facts. You are just making up this revisionist narrative, this fairy tale. Um, and it's hardly the case um, at all. Um, I welcome anybody to wander through the archives of Barber County like I have and
1: and, and challenge what I've written. No, I don't think people would uh, would take you up on that. Uh, well, hey, let's, uh, if Warren was inspiration in some ways uh, for Freedom's Dominion, then who will it be for the new project? Or, or is it more musical this time? <laughs> uh, yeah, I've resisted
2: writing about music. Um, it, you know, again, you're pretty prescient in your questions. Um, there's a Uruguayan writer named Eduardo Galeano. Uh, he wrote The Open Veins of Latin America, a three-volume history of Latin America called Memories of Fire. And it's a sort of mythopoetic, slightly magic realist, slightly document-based history of Latin America. And I have always thought it was a beautiful, beautiful set of books. Just uh, sports fans might know him as the author of uh, Football and Shadow and Light, uh, Soccer and Shadow and Light, one of the great books ever written on on soccer. And um, so I'm kind of toying. I'm not there yet, but I'm toying with the idea of writing just sort of leaving the methodology of history behind it and engaging in Galeano's uh, uh, approach to history and writing a history of the United States in that kind of voice. I think he invented a genre that nobody's pursued.
1: Hey, I think but, this, uh, no, it's interesting that you- Might fail. Well, hey, you you brought voice back into it.
2: Yeah, no, experimenting with voice is kind of what I'm interested in doing from, in my next project.
1: So, nice, well, and I suppose in the way you've been doing it all along, um hey so let me let, let me ask you this uh one of the coolest names in history i think uh is cassius clay uh <laughs> but but i have to say uh marshall poe and robert penn warren are right up there and so i think is jefferson Cowie. <laughs> um, uh, do you have a minute to share a bit about your name
2: my first name i presume you mean actually my, my last name actually has some interesting stuff too um uh yeah, my dad was a bit of a Thomas Jefferson freak. He never finished college or anything, but he believed in the sort of renaissance man part of Jefferson, that you know, the tinkerer, writer, intellectual statesman vision. And so, my mom who's from North Carolina used to tease every once in a while, "No, it was Jefferson Davis that I was named after," but I think she was just teasing. And uh so yeah, but it does come it does feel like fate that you end up becoming an historian when your first name is is Jefferson and it's, uh,
1: it's classic in a way
2: yeah right right i don't think you were asking me about this but the last name cowie uh there's a town in scotland uh called cowie uh and uh it was um one of the center one, one of the key places where the uh anti-thatcher uh uh mining strikes happened in the early and mid 80s um so the cowie miners are actually uh, quite a thing they and
1: they uh, spell it like you do yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't quite say it the same way, but they spell it. Like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. Nice. <laughs> that great. Uh, uh, well, um, <clears throat> those interested uh, in broadening uh, both their understanding of the history of America and the idea of freedom as domination, both conceptually and on the ground, uh, would do well uh, to pick up Jefferson Cowie's Freedoms Dominion. Uh, A Saga of White Resistance to Federal Power, published in 2022 by Basic Books. Professor Jefferson Cowie, award-winning author and historian, thank you for sharing your insights and thoughts about so many things that matter to us today.
2: It was a great time, Keith. Thanks for having me on.